This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic, Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church, powered by the Reformed African American Network. I'm your host for today's show, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter at Burns23. And my co-host to my left, and the computer is sitting to my left, so that's why I say that, to my left is our president and founder, Jamar Tisby. How you doing? Doing okay, man. Uh, I, I'm officially putting on the the list of most stressful jobs would be um, public school educator. Close, oh, man. Close to state testing. I'm just going to wow. put that out there. <laughs> I can only imagine. That's man. what I'm so, dealing with. So you're under the gun. I know the school year is kind of winding down to a close or at least is powering to a close. So what are some things you've learned? Man, um, I... I don't know. Yeah, you could totally do a whole podcast on it. I don't like state testing, not because I don't like accountability, but because it is all consuming for a lot of wrong reasons. But yeah, that is a whole other episode. Nevertheless, I've also learned that it's um, and I've known this for a while. It's very stressful, but rest in the Lord. It's all going to be okay. That's right, man. Man, I totally understand that. And I will definitely be praying for you. And listeners, please reach out to Jamar if you have any tips, any uh, stress reliever tips, um, <laughs> yoga poses, anything of that nature. Um, do that because Jamar needs it. I'm kidding. But just pray for him. Keep our brother in prayer. Um, keep us all in prayer as we're just going throughout our lives. And we've received some great encouragement from our listeners. Yeah. And we really appreciate the feedback. We and I'm going to say this very, very clearly. And I understand that sometimes it may appear that we... Don't appreciate certain types of feedback, appreciate other types of feedback. No, we appreciate all the feedback that we receive from the podcast. And some of it has caused us to change our approach in certain areas. Others of it has caused us to continue certain things and maybe add certain things to the mix that would help us. And uh, I just want to highlight just a couple of things that we received from people. Um, the first being Lamont Jackson on Twitter. Um, he is at T Lamont Speaks, and he said in regards to our last podcast about reformed African American uh, theology, he said this was a great episode and a great conversation, very necessary. Thank you very much, Lamont. Um, he also did what you should do if you enjoy the podcast, which is he joined the private Facebook group. So there's a private Facebook group called Pass the Mic on Facebook, and just apply to get in, and we'll let you in, and then you can have more of these conversations behind the scenes with a lot of the listeners and friends and us as well. Um, we also got some comments and reviews on iTunes. Um, starting with Nick in the Valley, um, who reviewed us in March. He said, good conversation on hard topics that drives toward understanding. When these topics are discussed with openness and honesty, it helps me as a white man understand my black brother's experiences, opening my eyes. Thanks. And we appreciate you, Nick. Thank you for listening. Um, we had a couple of others. I'll just read one more. Mike Sloan, um, who also commented in um, in March, he said, required listening for the dominant culture. As a white pastor, one of my biggest concerns is our failure to demonstrate the humility needed to even start listening to other voices outside of the dominant culture. Pastor Mike is an excellent starting place for Christians in the majority culture to understand that others do not have the same experience and that the love 
Christ calls us to demonstrate toward our brothers and sisters demands that we begin to listen and seek to understand. We need some new wineskins. And for that reason, I'm so thankful for this podcast. Thank you, Pastor Mike from Columbus, Ohio. We appreciate you listening. We hope that you're listening now and that this us reading this review knows helps you to understand that we see these reviews and we see as many as we can. We don't catch them all. We see as many as we can. And we just thank you guys for that. Um, I also want to mention something, and maybe Jamar, you can hop in here. Uh, there was a, uh, a man who responded to us uh, on the Pass of Mike Twitter, and he asked uh, Claude Ball, who's at uh, Claude Ball on Twitter, he said, can y'all do a podcast about dealing with rejection from the black community because of different opinion? Um, and I know we've touched on that before a little bit in certain podcasts years ago with some guests that we've had, but I think that's worthwhile. And I think that's something that most of us face, wouldn't you say so, Jamar? Absolutely. I mean, you, you sort of, it, I, th- I would say people um, engaged in racial justice at all are going to face, are going to be caught in the crossfire uh, from, you know, their own group, quote unquote, as well as from folks who are on the other side, ethnically or racially. However, there's, um, I think, a particular dynamic at play for ethnic minorities in in specifically African Americans, which is that because we are such a small minority, because we have such a shared history of marginalization and persecution, particularly in, in regards to race-based chattel slavery, uh, legalized segregation through Jim Crow laws, uh, no matter the diversity of the African American experience, those factors affected all of us. And so there is a sense of um, kind of solidarity or identification uh, with black culture because of that experience that so many uh, people of African descent have faced in the United States. So so there's almost a a a a a tighter circle, if you will, or a smaller definition mm. uh, for some people of what it quote unquote means to be black. And therefore, if you depart right. from the party lines, if you will, then you face rejection. You can't say certain things, particularly things that are associated with whiteness. So whether it's what denomination right. you're part of, uh, how you speak and use English, uh, what part of the city or the metro area you live in, if it's associated with whiteness, then there are going to be some people who so identify with black culture that they say you're, you're a traitor to the race, you're not one of us, and they exclude you. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it should also be said, and I don't want to get too much into this because I really wanted to do a podcast on it, maybe bring some guests on to talk about this, but It's important to remember that the black community is so dynamic that we could be talking about any portion of the community. This isn't just those people who maybe would disagree with certain racial terms or racial um, justice language, but it can also be people who stand for biblical sexuality. Um, It can also be Christians. Uh, It can also be people who um, have a different affiliation or, as Jamar was saying, different likes or different things that they talk about. Um, or different styles of music or different ways that they address uh, popular issues. So there's a, there's a number of different ways that this is played out. So we do want to get into those complexities. And so, Claude, I think that's a great suggestion. We have some other suggestions for future shows as well. Know that if you have sent those to us on Twitter um, and on the website, we're trying to catch as many of those as possible. And we look forward to answering those questions here on the podcast. And speaking of which... Jamar, let's get into something before we get into our main topic today. 
we have received some comments from people and who are well-meaning, and I think that they um, love us, and I don't want to impugn their motives at all, but they've just given us some some feedback that Rand Network, and in particular Pastor Mike, represents kind of a pro-black perspective, that there is a pro-black perspective here at Rand Network. Um, we've, we've, we talked a little bit about this when we talked about the idea that we're liberal and we're a liberal outlet intrinsically. Um, yeah, whatever that you, means. <laughs> what? I, yeah. See, that's that's my difficulty. So, number one, I think my initial question is, what is pro-blackness? What does that mean? What does that look like? And if we're trying to boil that down to a definition so that we can fit a certain criteria or we can check off whether or not we fit that criteria, what does that look like? Um, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe you can help me. Yeah, I have I, absolutely no idea. I haven't seen any of the commentators really clarify what they mean by pro-black, but is that like being pro-life? Because if so, I don't think that's such a bad thing. Um, right. And, 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 and what I, I mean, the way I view it, I could say in a sense, according to your definition, I am pro-black in the sense that there has been a a a a deficit of dignity afforded to uh, black people in this country. Okay, hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. You said a deficit of dignity. A deficit Ooh. of dignity. You like that alliteration? Yeah, I got a little Baptist yeah, in Yeah, look, I'm, I'm writing that down right now. I'm just, <laughs> just keeping it in a special folder. Just, you know, if I'm in another interview, I'm just going to throw it out. <laughs> anyway, go ahead. So, so how do you make up for that? How do you fill that gap? How do you, how do you make deposits then in that, in that, um, in that bank account? You have mm-hmm. to, give affirmation. You have to um, somehow promote uh, the idea that who you are, the skin you're in, is not as bad as society or particular individuals would make it out to be. Now, that is not the same as elevating blackness, however defined, to you know, the ultimate identity, our ultimate identity is in Christ and as Christians, but as, as human beings made in the likeness and the image of God, then if that image has been defaced, then there are some things you have to do to repair it. And I think what's being misconstrued is us saying positive things about black culture, black people, um, being black, that's being misconstrued as being this kind of over the top, pro-black to where that identity, that racial and cultural identity is supreme and what defines all that we say, think, and do, which is simply not the case. Yes. And that's a very um, well put um, just statement about how we view this. Um, We know our central identity is in Christ as Christians and believers, but I also want to you know, maybe say that we don't give our comments, our, our commentary and our podcast or our website in a vacuum. First of all, I would say that our website is much more diverse than it would appear at first glance to some people. Um, there have been some comments and some some articles written that some people within who we would say, quote unquote, woke circles in the black community and black reform community have strongly disagreed with um, in many ways and kind of come at us about. So we would say that, that first of all, the website is very diverse and we don't always agree with each other on the podcast also. Um, we're friends and so we may lightly push back. I mean, even as you saw uh, with the previous episode, we may lightly push back against some of the ideas. Um, but disagreement doesn't mean that we have to come with a 10-point debate 
Um, it means that we acknowledge that the brother or sister who we're disagreeing with may have a point and may be stretching us in a way that feels uncomfortable to us, but it's something that we need to heed. They are our brother and iron sharpens iron. But I also want to say that we have to remember this is within the context of the broader Christian community and in our case, a broader reform community, which many people have spoken about as being very uh, unintentionally ethnocentric, should we say. Uh, not intending to be all uh, white majority voices, but there have been that oversaturation. So if you think about that in the academy, in what you hear, in what you read, in the books that are recommended, in the voices of, of preachers who are considered orthodox, many times we have we have taken that and anything that someone says that's contrary or that adds a contour to what's being said is seen as kind of a pendulum swing to pro-blackness. Um, Do you finally, think, go yeah, ahead. Well, I was going to ask if you think that because of the particular topic we're addressing, race, um, it, within the circles that we're addressing them, Christianity, Reformed Christianity, that there is a, a, a different emphasis or even a double standard that um, one would be asked to explain uh, you know, explain positions and stances in a way that if we were tackling another topic or or an, another issue mm -hmm. in a different venue, wouldn't be asked. I don't know if that yeah. makes sense. Probably, probably <laughs> so. Um, maybe it's an un, it's an unintentional double standard. Maybe it's a, a a double standard that exists to quiet down um, dissenting voices. Um, and maybe some people think that we've fallen off. Maybe some people think that we're just not orthodox. Um, that's that's definitely um, your opinion, and that's something that we respect. But you know, I would disagree personally, humbly. Um, now, I, I will say that with a lot of this, we are in the baby stages, the infancy stages of having these conversations. So if you've maybe made that comment about us being pro-black, don't take this as a slamming you or discarding your thoughts or dismissing you. But we will say that if you consider our entirety, the entirety of our work, that we are self-critical of what some people will call black cultural pathology, but we believe that some of that has context. So we don't just dismiss black cultural pathology as being the normative aspect of, of who black people are or even the majority of who black people are in America. Um, if you want to meet some pro-black people for real, go in your city and meet some black Hebrew Israelites, some Pan-Africans, Egyptologists, um, Nation of Islam. You will find out very quickly what is pro-black. And I'll say from my experience, I've been in a lot of sectors and a lot of spheres where I've been laughed out of the building uh, as being a person who doesn't even care about black issues. So I'd be very careful in, in making the comparison and pushing the goalposts back and forth, because I think in comparison to who we would really say is pro-black, I think we have a pretty good gospel emphasis. And that's not to say we're perfect. We have a lot of room to improve, but I think we're pretty tame. I don't know about you, Jamar. <laughs> I think so. Um, and it is, you know, a matter of seeing, like you said, folks who truly are pro-black and that's what they're trying to be sounds vastly different than anything we're saying. I think you're not telling people to go back to Africa. I mean, we not, you know, we not, he would not wearing dashikis. Nothing wrong with that. They, they cool. You know, it, Here's what I think it is. Now, this for the for the folks who think we're pro-black, this is going to sound very grating, I think. We have been so steeped 
we have been so used to formulations and articulations of Christianity from a white and dominant perspective that any time an ethnic minority or almost any time an ethnic minority talks about that, talks about that topic of of race or differences in culture, it is going to sound like a bullhorn two inches away from your ear because we're so used to hearing something different. But that doesn't mean what is coming that's new is wrong. It just means we haven't heard it enough or we haven't heard it right. often enough. And so that's what I think is happening. When, 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 when you, I mean, I went through 107 credit hours of seminary, and I can mm-hmm. count on one hand the number of particularly African-American authors, but whether it be women, whether it be uh, folks from the two-thirds world, very, very, very limited exposure. And I got a great education, but the education I got was very much from a homogenous or more alike than different uh, group of, uh, in terms of culture and race, group of people. So so then anytime you hear something different, it's going to be this this glaring kind of uh, difference that that Mm. may be blown out of proportion, and I don't think it is. I think it's just we're not used to hearing it. Yeah. Yeah, no, I totally understand. I mean, I think another thing that's that's at work is that personal experience in both of us and in all of the guests that we have on the podcast. And there are people who have constantly been told that these concerns are illegitimate, so they've kind of pushed them to the side. And now we're we're seeing evidence that is really undeniable and we're coming to these conclusions from scripture. And we're having to contend with the entirety of the scriptural canon. And so in doing that and in, in diving deep into context and trying to understand the times of the day and, and, and the times in which scripture was, was written and the commands of God, we're going through shifts and, and expansions ourselves. Tyler, I'm glad you brought this up because it, it is reminding me of something that I've had an increasingly increasing realization on and more and more thoughts about, which is that there has been a ton of work and research and thought that have gone into racial dynamics in the United States. And I think some of our listeners are relatively new to the conversation. And by relatively new, I mean a few months or even the past couple of years, uh, Mm -hmm. recognize that literally for centuries, people in particular African-Americans have been talking about race in this country and how it affects them. And so there's a vast body of knowledge from from literature to history books to particular events, movies, you name it, that right. all add context to this. And And what I think is part of the problem is that when you are part of the dominant culture, you're sort of used to being heard, and you're used to listening things, listening to things that are intelligible to you culturally. In other words, you understand them. You understand where it's coming from. I think when min- right. minorities start to speak up, and this is true in Christian circles as well, it's a different dynamic. So that minorities have some things to say that need to be heard because they haven't traditionally been heard within the broader conversation. And if that's the case, then people who have been part of that broader conversation or have shaped that conversation, need to actually not speak and listen. This is not to say that you don't have anything to say. 
all it's saying is that be quick to listen so that you get the context. You, you start to understand from someone else's perspective. And then, yes, by all means speak. But I think a lot of times some of the pushback that we get on RAN is from folks who think they already have enough context or, or, or know it all, know enough anyway. Um, and then they, 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 they start to say things, uh, before it's really, you know, before they really do have enough context. And so I think part of the, part of what can help move us forward is recognizing that within different venues, we have different levels of comfort, comfortability and expertise. And so in those areas where I'm not as well versed, I need to take a posture of listening, even when I feel right. like talking. That may be the wise thing to do and wait for the opportunity, um, which, by the way, ethnic minorities have been doing for a very long time. Quite a long time. Yeah, <laughs> we exactly. have we have had to listen to uh, the cues from the dominant culture and learn it and be able to speak that language, if you will, but also uh, having our own sort of subdominant culture to be familiar with and to try to translate that for other people. So I, you know, I'm, I'm still formulating clearer thoughts on that, but I would just, you know, recommend that if you feel like you're kind of new to the conversation, utilize the podcast, utilize the network, utilize the website as a place to listen in, gain some of that context, um, join the, join the, the Facebook group, that's a safe place to ask questions. Have friends where it's a safe place to ask questions. I advise churches very carefully and in small settings to bring up these conversations so that we're thinking through this Christianly. Um, so, yeah, those are just my two cents. And, hey, we're, we're probably not doing things perfectly, but uh, we are definitely striving to do things as biblically faithful, but as as honest, culturally honest and relevant as we can be. So continue to give us feedback. We appreciate it so much. And now we're going to dive into a completely uncontroversial topic. Yes. Um, I'm totally kidding. Um, and this is the only time I can really kid because this entire conversation that we're about to enter into is is really no laughing matter at all. Uh, recently, um, the Tamir Rice decision came down for the city of Cleveland uh, to give them a to give the Tamir Rice family a six million dollar settlement. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with the Tamir Rice story, uh, Tamir Rice was gunned down at a park near his home while he played with an airsoft replica pistol on November twenty second, twenty fourteen. Uh, the two police officers involved in the incident, Frank uh, Garnback and Timothy Lohman, uh, were members of of a union, a Cleveland police union. And they faced no uh, criminal charges uh, for shooting Rice. Uh, the officers were responding to a 911 call about a person with a gun. Uh, dispatchers failed to communicate to the cops that the caller said that the gun was a toy or probably fake and that Rice was most likely a juvenile. And uh, he was 12 years old and he was shot and killed pretty much on site. So uh, basically the the difficulty and the, the reason why this has kind of hopped back into the news is because um, uh, a man named... Stephen Loomis made some suggestions about how the Rice family should use the money that they were given. Uh, in particular, he said, we can only hope, only hope the Rice family and their attorneys will use a portion of this settlement uh, to help educate the youth of Cleveland in the dangers associated with the mishandling of both real and facsimile firearms. Uh, something positive must come from this tragic loss, and that would be educating youth of the dangers of possessing a real or replica firearm, and um, and by the way, yeah. Steve Loomis is president of the Cleveland Police Patrolmen's Association. 
So he's speaking yeah. on behalf of uh, that association and sort of the rank and file police officers um, who are who yeah. are in it. Yeah, man. Um, I don't know what to say to this, man. Um, <laughs> this is uh, I said on my Facebook uh, wall, which I've been trying to keep my comments about these things kind of to the podcast and maybe some some blogs and, and personal conversations. But I said this both angering and heartbreaking all at the same time. Um, the audacity that is shown here in these particular comments um, greatly bothered me and a lot of other people. And I'm sure it bothered you as well, Jamar. Yeah, well, I think there's a couple things to say. One one is that these incidents have lingering repercussions. So this shooting happened all the way back in 2014. Yep. And yet the le- just the legal aspect of it is still ongoing. The settlement is just a couple days old as of the re- recording of this podcast. And and for the Rice family, for the Cleveland Police Department, for the officers involved, um, and for anyone who's concerned about this, the, there are ripple effects. And, and can we extrapolate that to lots of other events and movements in this country so that if yeah. we go back 40, 50 years, could the civil rights movement – and the things that that we were struggling for still be still have ongoing effects could could the struggle still be continuing now can we go even further back uh to to other incidents like 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 the the murder of Emmett Till and all that mm. came of it or even further back to slavery so i i think one of the things that we got to understand is that these aren't just one and done type of things that we report on it. We talk about it for a couple of weeks and it becomes it, a hashtag, you know, and, and then we move on. nice tied up with a, a, a neat little bow and it's all done. No, this, this is ongoing and the results are ongoing. And we're just hearing now about this settlement, but the family's been involved in negotiations this whole time and the, and the people are still hurting and the city is still hurting. So, I think that's important because the past <laughs> affects our present. And if we yeah. aren't understanding that about particularly about cases involving civil rights, then we're not going to understand the outrage. Um, and that's the yeah. second point, I think. Like, so, so this state, the, so, the, so the city of Cleveland, what the statement says is the city of C- Cleveland shall pay $6 million to settle all claims by all plaintiffs against all defendants. The city shall pay $3 million in 2016 and $3 million in 2017. You go further down in that statement, it's just one page. It says, there is no admission of wrongdoing and mm-hmm. all plaintiffs will execute full releases against the city of Cleveland and all individual defendants. And so if you talk about the justice aspect, you know, this 12-year-old boy is dead. He's not coming back in this life. Um, And from a legal standpoint, there is no admission of wrongdoing, uh, despite the fact that video evidence shows that before the police car even stopped rolling, uh, the officer had jumped out of the car and shot this young man. So, was it one point six seconds or something of that? Yeah, along less that nature? Than, less than two seconds. Um, yeah. So so, and here's the can- here's the thing: people will fixate just on the data from that event. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a couple of things. Number one, the proximity of Steve Loomis's statement to mm-hmm. the the news breaking about the settlement. Why did he come out immediately after that with this statement? 
that's a huge deal. Right. Time and place. Reading right. over that statement in isolation, you wouldn't find too much to object to in the sense of, yeah, young people should be educated about playing with toy guns, especially if they look real. That's, to me, indisputable. You should do that. My own son, I tell him the same thing. And I won't even allow him to point toy gun. We don't buy them, period. Uh, but I won't even allow him to make like finger guns and point them at people simply because I don't want him to get in the habit of uh, uh, pointing something that could be deadly at another human being, period. Uh, so I agree with that. But in terms of when this statement was released, what it made it look, what it made it seem like, and I can't speak for the Steve Loomis's motives, but what it made it seem like is number one, blame the victim. In other words, mm-hmm. Tamir shouldn't have been playing with a toy gun that looked real. It was his fault and not the poor judgment of the officer. Number two, uh, it, 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 it basically, it demands that they use the money <laughs> to, to help educate uh, other kids on toy guns. So he's telling the Rice family what to do with the settlement money. Um, and then number three, it's not just what he said, it's what he didn't say. So why yeah. didn't Loomis say that this should be a time of reflection and action for the Cleveland Police Department? Why didn't he say right. that they would act on the recommendations of the Justice Department who has issued two scathing reports within 10 years of one another about the Cleveland Police Department. Why didn't he? Why didn't he turn that around back on the department that he speaks for and let someone else, like the Rice family, say, "Here's how we want to turn this tragedy. How how to bring some good about it." So, those were my issues. Yeah, and for those who think we're we're reading into his statements about victim blaming, he said as much in 2015 um, in an interview with Political Magazine. He said specifically. Um, Tamir Rice is in the wrong. He's menacing. He's five feet seven, 191 pounds. He wasn't that little kid you're seeing in pictures. He's a 12 year old in an adult body. Are you now, serious? This is yes. This is Steve Loomis. This is Loomis in 2015. That's that's so outrageous. Yeah. No, I can I can send you the link. Yeah, I believe you. But it's outrageous. Yeah, it's it's unbelievable. It's uh it's unthinkable. And I think we need to be honest with a couple of things, you know, and maybe this particular case has affected me probably more than the others, because in dealing with young people and in dealing with the the foolish and sometimes silly things that young people will do and engage in, um, yet still seeing their worth, yet still seeing their humanity. Um, just last night, man, I was hanging with you know, a bunch of 12 year old young men and talking about biblical manhood and talking about what it means to be um, someone who takes responsibility for yourself and pushing off adolescence and and ensuring that you take responsibility for your actions and and keep the gospel central to everything that you do in your life. And to think that one of them could be this easily taken out, you know, yeah, that's, they're growing. Yeah, yeah, they're big. I mean, they're, they're not adults. They're children. <laughs> let let you me know. Let me. Number one, I totally identify. I work with fifth and sixth graders at at this middle school. And so every day, 11, 12-year-old boys, young boys, you know, growing into men. Yes, some of them taller than I am, which is not hard to do, but still, they're boys. And here's what some research says. Um, 
this study conducted by a professor at, at uh, UCLA, University of California, Los Angeles, uh, studied the perceptions of age between different races. So, so somebody looking at a child, they guess their age. And of course, for uh, young black males, there, there was a misestimate of adding four to four and a half years to their actual age based on perception. And here's a quote from, from, uh, from uh, the author of the study. Children in most societies are considered to be in a distinct group with characteristics such as innocence and the need for protection. Our research found that black boys can be seen as responsible for their actions at an age when white boys still benefit from the assumption that children are essentially innocent. And this study was conducted among police officers. And so what they found was that for minorities generally, but African-Americans in particular, there was an assumption of culpability for violent crimes or theft. There was an right. assumption of guilt. There was an assumption of a higher age and therefore more threatened, more a uh, more threatening person. And could this have been at play? When Rice yeah. was shot, yeah. uh, you know, you never n quite know for certain because these beliefs are so deeply held and so subtle. But study after study shows that there is a different perception of African-Americans and young black males. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I, I do want to in insert this into the conversation. I think this is important uh, for people. And we've received some comments about this. Um, before there are in both my family, my community, my church, uh, police officers who I have relationship with and, um, good friends and, um, family members and, and uncles and cousins. And, um, I care about them deeply and I pray for their safety. And we've hosted forums at our church to talk about, um, responsible behavior around police officers. I want to make that clear uh, because I think a lot of people have said well, you're not in the position of the officer and you're right. We're not. Um, but I think life demands us, especially the taking of life demands us to have a very high bar for what is justifiable behavior in that situation. And while we do respect and appreciate all of our police officers who may be listening and who are Christians, we also pray that the judgments that they make on their job are, are not influenced by a bias system or by bias or sinful bias that may exist even latent within their hearts that they don't know about or may not acknowledge. Um, and the stakes are high in, in this particular job. And so we, we do pray for you. We do um, acknowledge the inherent danger and risk, but we also do want to comment on the fact that we need to be careful about absolving um, people from guilt just simply because their job is difficult. Um, we need to be honest about the fact that life demands for us to have a high bar and high expectations of the people who serve us, especially when life and death is in their hands. And I'm going to make the assumption that I think is very reasonable that the tens of thousands of officers who do their job with wisdom and faithfulness every day are mostly unsung. It's, yeah, Absolutely. It's much easier to point out this fatality than yes. all of the situations where death was avoided, where the situation was de-escalated, where officers acted uh, according to their training and, and did very, very well. 
right. obviously those don't get the press. Obviously those don't get much attention, but that's not to say that we are saying those things don't happen and that probably they happen more often than not. Um, and so we do appreciate that work and the incredibly and the terribly hard job uh, it is to, to have uh, the ability to use lethal force and to judge when that is appropriate. Yeah. Um, so we, that, that's good. I'm glad you brought that up, Tyler. We, yeah. I just want to be, I just want to be very honest and open about that. I know that this is a consensus topic and it's, it's heavy. And I think a lot of people have close proximity to law enforcement officers. And so their view of how it's perceived and view of how our comments are perceived and how other people's comments, um, maybe their comments have gone way too far and have been disrespectful and inappropriate. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and we want to be very careful with our comments, but we also do want to acknowledge that while, while we do feel that sensitivity and we do acknowledge those unsung police officers, that these still matter in the sense that we have to be very careful about ensuring that as much as possible, these situations are not continuing to happen, that the plethora of situations do not continue without any justice, without any, um, and, and this is this is very important because a lot of people have said this, a $6 million settlement to the Tamir Rice family does not affect change within the police department in that area. Yeah. It does not at all. What it does is it provides some compensation for their pain and grief, but it does not affect change, nor does it affect change in the numerous police departments around the country where these are still issues, where lack of accountability may persist, or where there needs to be a restructuring or heavier training That's or yeah. you know, all these things or community involvement. And we believe that some of this is done, but we believe that some of this is done separate from the community that it serves. Mm -hmm. And I think that is very important to remember that while people may point to say, hey, the six million dollars in settlement, what are you what more would you want? They would want Tamir Rice to be alive right now. They would trade this six million dollars for him to be living and breathing with us right now. Have mercy. Let me say this, because you you're touching on what is vital. So beyond the particular incident, we've got to look at the forces that sh that led up to this. Not even just the phone call, but what is going on in this particular police department? Uh, mm -hmm. Because there were lots of questions about the the qualifications and the capabilities of the officer involved in the shooting. Yes. he had already had some questionable. Um, actions in the past and, and hadn't received great job performance reviews. But Correct. also, the Department of Justice did a thorough investigation of the entire police department and found that cases of extreme force were common. Let hmm. me read you a couple uh, excerpts from the Department of Justice report. Again, this is the second report in 10 years, which is a very short amount of time for this level of, of investigation. And both uh, studies found similar things. But the most recent report said this. We found incidents of Cleveland Police Department officers firing their guns at people who do not pose an immediate threat of death or serious bodily injury to the officers or others, mm -hmm. and using guns in a careless and dangerous manner, including hitting people in the head with their guns in circumstances where deadly force is not justified. Mm -hmm. Our review also revealed that officers use excessive force against individuals who are in mental health crisis or who may be unable to understand or comply with officers' commands, including when the individual is not suspected of having committed a crime at all. couple more. Critically, 
Officers do not make effective use of de-escalation techniques. Too right. often, instead, escalating encounters and employing force when it may not be needed and could have been avoided. While these tactical errors may not always result in constitutional violations, they place officers, suspects, and other members of the Cleveland community at risk. Deeply troubling to us was that some of the specially trained investigators who are charged with conducting unbiased reviews of officers' use of deadly force admitted to us that they conduct their investigations with the goal of casting the accused officer in the most positive light possible. Mm. This admitted bias appears deeply rooted, cuts at the heart of the accountability system at the Cleveland Police Department. Hmm. Wow. Wow. I, that's really all I can say. Well, I think what we have to do, like you're saying, is not just focusing on this particular incident or the settlement looking at how you actually change the entire circumstances of the police department to where these things happen less frequently. Okay, so let's let's talk maybe in some practical and maybe biblical, you know, insight. How do we as maybe we're not law enforcement officials, you know, is it is it a protest? Is it a boycott? What are we what are we supposed to do or is it relationships or is it opening up our homes and reaching out to the the local police department to find out what we can do to serve them and to encourage them what what is it that we should be doing right now because i think you know most of us are 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 angered by this situation and upset and heartbroken by this situation at the very least but what can we do about it I mean, I think that <laughs> or am I asking the wrong question jamar what well, i I don't think so um it's multifaceted, and and I I go back to that acronym ARC awareness, relationships, commitment. One is awareness. You know, do we know? I mean, number one, have you seen the video? I, I suspect there are probably a lot of people who didn't see the video in the initial um, aftermath in 2014 and may ha- not have seen it yet. So you can look for yourself. Number two, can you raise awareness uh, for yourself by? Uh, reading this Department of Justice report, reading the settlement, reading Steve Loomis's report, just know the facts of the case. Know what happened is one. Uh, and I'm, I fear far too many of us just, you know, post a comment or, or react without doing any sort of even preliminary research. I think that's one. Number two, honestly, in my life, I haven't done a march or a protest or 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 written my congressperson or anything like that what i have done is engage in conversations with law enforcement people police officers who are in my social network and just asking them what 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 do you think about this what's going on help me understand from somewhat of an insider's perspective i think at least for me number one it puts a face to it so that when officers face the threat of bodily harm, this right. is this is a person I know, and and like you said, can pray for them and pray for their safety. Uh, I think that helps give a much needed balance to what we hear broadcast in the news. But also, you do get you know some of the nuances that that may not appear in other outlets. And then, lastly, I think what commitment looks like in this case is a lot of different things. Uh, for me, it, it I want to some well. I want to, there's a lot of different ways to approach it. So, um, 
you can approach it on the prison side and rehabilitating prisoners. You can approach it on the preventative yeah. side and talking about uh, community policing and being involved as a community member in your uh, local police department and and and, yeah. and being a, a, a good citizen that way. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I think another thing that's practical for me and you in particular, and maybe some of the parents or mentors who are listening is to encourage our young people to consider careers in the criminal justice system. Um, if if the system is going to change, if bias is going to be eliminated, if there's going to be as much as possible a fair and impartial system, we have to inject people into the system who have a biblical worldview and framework, but who also understand the realities of some of these issues and who are willing to serve and give their lives to these issues and doing them the proper way. Um, it is very easy to encourage young people to go into certain fields that will yield the most money and recognition, but it is very uh, difficult to push them in a way that will demand service of their lives. And I encourage people to open that conversation up. Um, there are some young men who I know who I was surprised years ago when they said they wanted to go into criminal justice. There wasn't really in their family. Um, it wasn't something that I could even see them doing, to be honest. I was like, I don't really know if this would fit you. Um, but now they serve as police officers and they do a great job and they're involved in their community and they connect with local churches and local organizations and hear their concerns and, and work with them. So those stories are possible. And I think we have to be very open and honest about preventing this from a holistic perspective, not just in the idea of responding to tragedy with our voices or with uh, Twitter campaigns or with hashtag activism, but also practically boots on the ground. How do we change a system? And part of it is that there are Christian people or there are people of principle who step into that system and enact the change themselves with their hands and with their feet. Um, so I think that's a very important thing. And, and continuing to open up this dialogue, if you are in a church that's in an inner city and you have not done or you, you know, sometimes it's not possible because of the relationship between the police department and the church or, or what have you. But I think there are a lot of opportunities to create awareness in young people and in um older people as well with what to do when you're pulled over by a police officer. It's 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 actually a, a, a funny story, but we had one of these forums and as soon as one of our, our one of our elders, him and his wife got into the car and then they were headed home. And they've been going to our church for for over a decade. And they were they were headed home and they got pulled over by a police officer. Oh, and wow. they said they never felt any sort of, of trepidation at all because they had been briefed and they knew what they were supposed to do. The officer was friendly to them. It disarmed any sort of apprehension that they would have felt mm -hmm. previously because they knew what to do. If you know what to do and you know people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge, right? That's what the scripture tells us. And so if we have knowledge, if we have understanding, then we will act accordingly. And I think the church has a responsibility and a role to seek the peace of the city. And part of that is educating our, you know, our, our um, congregations on what they're supposed to do. I love that you said that. I love that you said all that. Um, you're absolutely right. And, and especially our next generation. And that is one of the things that we have endeavored to do at our school is having officers there, not as security guards, but as 
professionals. As yeah, that's good. Basically, uh, what we want to do is give our kids exposure to a variety of careers, and I'm making a special effort that they get exposure to law enforcement, um, you know, particularly police officers, so that they know, look, they are here to protect you. They are here to uh, look out for your interests. And if you get to know them, what they do, how they do it, how to get there, it becomes much more of a feasible uh, career and vocation for you. And I think yeah. you're absolutely right to have Christians in these fields who uh, can apply a biblical worldview to all that they that that's involved in law enforcement. Those are great suggestions. Yeah. And maybe you guys have some other suggestions. I mean, feel free to reach out to us on Twitter. Uh, maybe you're a police officer. If you've worked in law enforcement for years and, and maybe you have some thoughts and, and maybe some things we haven't considered, please reach out to us. Um, you can obviously follow me on Twitter at Burns23. Follow Jamar Tisby at Jamar Tisby as well. Um, or you can email us or leave comments on the RAND Network website. We'll be sure to get to them as quickly as possible and uh, to respond to those and maybe even even bring those onto the podcast so that they can be heard and considered by our audience. So we're learning, and I think all of us have to have a posture of learning, but I, I don't want to have any more of these situations happen. Yeah. I know that a lot of them are um, sometimes unavoidable, and sometimes there's fault on the side of the person who is um, who is deceased, but... In this particular case, man, I'm just hurt by it and I'm heartbroken and I want to do everything that I can. I know your heart is as well, Jamar, to do everything that we can to make sure that these situations do not happen where our listeners live and where we live. Couldn't have said it better. Amen, brother. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us for this episode of Pass the Mic. Um, If you want to stay in touch with us, which you should, obviously you can follow us on Twitter at Rand Network. And our our Twitter handle for Pass the Mic is at underscore Pass the Mic. Also, like us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Reformed African Americans. You can also find us on the Pass the Mic private closed Facebook group. It's really a great forum where we can have some open conversations. Some people have asked, well, I'm not Reformed. I'm not an African American. Can I still come in to the conversation on the private Pass the Mic group? And the answer is, of course, no. Um, So (laughs) just skip that. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) The answer is absolutely um, come on in. There there are plenty of opportunities. It's a great group. Plenty of opportunities to speak. Lots of diverse opinions. Um, lots of, of pushback and tension and, and in a very respectful, charitable way. And we haven't had really any incidents of uh, that I can see of, of me worrying about, you know, what is, is this person misunderstanding or is there bad blood here? Um, I think there are a lot of people who want to have this conversation in love. Um, but with also grace and truth. So come join us over there if you want to continue this conversation. And uh, thank you so much to our producer, Bo York, um, who is a satchel superstar. That's what I'm going to call Bo. I like for now. that. I like that. Uh, a satchel superstar. Um, he's a podcasting genius. And so we thank him so much for using his platform, Pottery. Keep piling it on. That's good. <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to keep going. Just keep going. Bo is amazing. You should follow his other podcasts as well. So just follow him at Real Bo York and you will find just some great materials and on a lot of different uh, topics, a lot of different areas of emphasis. And so we ask that you would subscribe to us on iTunes, also leave us a review, and also on the Satchel app as well, which is a great opportunity to donate to us and also to leave some helpful comments. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us. And we look forward to speaking with you again soon on the next Pass the the Mic.
You've been listening to Pass the Mic, a Pottery production. To find out more about this and other shows, visit Pottery.com. That's P-O-D-A-S-T-E-R-Y.com. This episode was brought to you in part by the Lord of Spirits podcast. Many Christians yearn to break free of the influence of secular materialism and to understand the union of the seen and unseen worlds as made by God. What is the spiritual world like? Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.